at some point um, in one of his letters says, you know, Paul writes some very difficult things. And that was one of them, but I'm not sure that's what he meant. It's a, a bit of a tongue twister there. A couple of weeks ago, uh, we got to listen to Phil Brown uh, read the same text. And, and it is difficult uh, uh, to read, but it's, uh, it's a great text and it's insightful for us tonight. And uh, we're going to pray and we're going to jump in that text. But before I do it, um, many of you, uh, as, as is your, your custom, uh, you like to stick around on Sunday mornings and, and to talk and to visit and, and to fellowship and encourage and, uh, you know, just meet and talk to as many people as you can. And maybe you were still here when uh, you witnessed the baptism this morning. Linda Worrell has a lifetime friend going all the way back when, you know, Linda and her friend Linda were very, very small and very young and they've just been best friends ever since. And uh, Linda Weaver, who is Linda Worrell's best friend, and has been for, for decades and uh, uh, just very, very close, uh, is struggling with, uh, with cancer. And Linda Whirl has studied uh, the Bible with her and has brought her to a place where she realizes that the gospel is, is the good news that she needs. And uh, she was baptized this morning after our assembly. And so we want to be praying for Linda Weaver our new sister in Christ, as well as uh, uh, for the, the cancer that uh, she's struggling with right now. She just got back from MD Anderson uh, this last week, and uh, we want to not only rejoice, but join in prayer for Linda. And we're going to do that right now as we also pray for our hearts and minds and eyes and ears as we get ready to, to think about uh, Romans 7. Father, we're grateful for... The, the good news that we have been delivered from our enemy, we have been delivered from uh, an enemy that, that wants to enslave us and enslave us to the point of death and death where there is no return. And, and yet, Father, this is not an enemy that we fear. We have been saved through the Gospel, through the, through, through the work of Christ in paying for the... the uh, the penalty of our guilt for the crimes that we have committed against Your holiness as well as gratefulness, Father, for, for the fact that we are now justified in Your sight by His work. And this not just warms us, Father, this changes us. And we pray never to lose sight of the greatness of the Gospel in our life. And what You have done, Father, the, the, not just in a magnanimous sense, but in a... An uh, a tsunami level shift in in history, Father, you you have changed all things through the cross, and we pray, Father, never to to allow that to 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 flicker and 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 diminish in our our hearts in such a way that it goes out, but that it get brighter and brighter and stronger and stronger, and we're grateful for that. Gospel, Father, that came to bear on Linda's heart over the last several weeks and how she has decided to line her life up with Your will, Father, and to receive the forgiveness of her sins and to die to those sins, Father, and to participate through that baptism in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and not just die to those sins, but to be resurrected to, to a, a new creature. And we rejoice in this power that has come to bear in her life. 
And we're grateful, Father, that You now see in her a daughter and a child that belongs lock, stock, and barrel to You. And so as we study and continue to study, Father, the book of Romans, we pray that that, that Paul's wisdom, inspired by Your Spirit, that this become a great, great piece of, of how we live and the filter through which we, we encounter life and encounter suffering and encounter pleasure in good times and bad times, high times and low times. We pray, Father, that all of that come to bear upon all that we are so that we can be the children, Father, that bring a smile to Your face and bring honor and glory to Your name. So we pray to this end again in the name of Jesus to give us eyes and to give us ears so that we can see and we can hear. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I'm going to be very personal uh, for a minute. Sometimes teaching the Bible is a very exhilarating experience. There are times when, uh, you, you know, kind of the, um, the, the rhythm of my life is Monday, uh, you begin uh, getting acquainted with, with a text, and it's a text that you've been sort of thinking about and getting acquainted with for you know, now for over 30 years, and you begin to collect material. But as you, as you move towards the, the, the moment where you preach that, that sermon, you begin on a Monday to get acquainted with it. And you read it, and you read material, and you diagram the sentences, and it all, all of the reading, all of the note-taking, all that you do kind of comes together on a Thursday morning where for you know, anywhere from, from seven to eight hours, it's just straight writing of a sermon. And uh, there, there are times when in preparing a sermon that, that you catch a glimpse of the greatness of what it is that God is doing. And I can uh, become overcome by the greatness of what God is doing and is teaching us in that text that I find my eyes filling up with tears. And, and sometimes even to the point of them uh, coming down my cheeks. And... Uh, what is happening is that there's an insight that's given into the nature of God or the character of God or what it is that, that is so special about the love of God or the purpose of God or the will of God for your life that it just, t- touches, it, it just touches us in such a way that it, it changes us and it, it touches our heart for good. And that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's an incredibly uh, sublime moment. And there are times, though, that then we also come to texts and we're given insight into what it means to be human and it's not all that pleasant. Uh, over the last uh, a couple of months, there have been a couple of these as well on our Wednesday night classes, our early bird and 7 o'clock classes. And studying you know, this last week of Jesus' life, there are two in particular that I think of. In Luke chapter 22, the, the, uh, the, the Last Supper has already been experienced by Jesus and His disciples. Uh, Jesus uh, has left that upper room. Judas has gone. He goes into the Garden of Gethsemane. His heart and his soul are filled up to the overflow with anguish. And he's praying that the cup will be taken from him. But Jesus, from the very beginning of, of his ministry, has aligned his life with the will of God. And it's not you know, his will to be done, but it's God's will to be done. But it's an anguish-filled, anxious time for him that goes all the way to the core of his soul. And he comes back to his disciples and he has found them asleep, which in, uh, after these, these big fellowship meals of which they have just participated in, uh, the fellowship is broken once people go to sleep. 
And Jesus, in going and finding His disciples asleep, has, is now really alone. And while He is speaking to them about not falling into temptation, Judas comes and Luke does something that's very interesting. We're at the very end of Luke's Gospel. We have read you know, 21 nearly, uh, this is at the end of chapter 22, we've read nearly 22 chapters out of 24. And Luke does something very interesting after all of this time and after all of this reading when he talks about Judas coming into the garden. He says, the one called Judas, one of the twelve. And it's interesting in the sense that we know who Judas is. Anybody that has started in Luke chapter 1 and gets to Luke chapter 22 and has, 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 has read all the way to this garden scene knows who Judas is. But Luke reminds us that Judas is one of the twelve. And, and the reason that he reminds us in case we should forget, is that Jesus is dying for the sins of the world. And in case we sort of forget what that means, we are reminded by Luke that Judas, one of the twelve, one of his compatriots, one of his closest associates, one of those that he has spent intense amounts of time and relationship and energy with for three years, he is the one. The one who has seen Jesus in all of His, his love and all of His compassion and all of His teaching, His wisdom and with the miracles. He has seen this. One of the twelve, though, is going to betray Him. And it's a reminder of what the human heart can become. And the reason that Jesus died. Another one is found in Matthew chapter 28 after Jesus is resurrected. The angels have come. The earthquake has taken place. The stone has been rolled back. The soldiers have fainted. And Jesus is resurrected. Now the soldiers get up and they go to the chief priests who later on uh, uh, go to the elders. And, and Matthew tells us that these soldiers told them everything. Which means that the soldiers told the religious leaders of Israel about the angel and told these religious leaders about the earthquake and told them about the stone being moved back and how it was such an awesome, incredibly frightening experience for them that Matthew says that they fell to the ground like dead men, meaning you know, that they fainted completely away in fright. And so you would think that these religious leaders would say, maybe we had it all wrong. Maybe if there was an angel, they've been told everything, if there was an angel in an earthquake after all of the things that they have seen at the crucifixion and hearing what Jesus had to say, they would say, maybe we had it wrong. Maybe He really was everything and more that He ever said. Maybe He really is the Son of God. Maybe He really is the Messiah. Maybe we were the ones that were wrong. Except that's not what they do. After having been told everything that happened, they come up with a plan and they devise a, 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 a plan and a bribe and a lie about the resurrection. The, the Bible can sometimes paint such unbelievably, desperately dark pictures of what it means to be a human being. 
But at the same time, the Bible can help our hearts, our hearts and our, our souls and our mind to soar in, 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 in the, the, the heights of God's grace in such a way that we don't have a word to describe it. All we have to demonstrate it are tears. Because it's just so beautiful. I remember one of the, the, the young men that I converted while we were living down in Brazil. Uh, I was so excited that here's this guy we've been working with for a long time. He'd lived such a, such a terrible life and, and such an immoral life. And, and something had kind of snapped and he knew that he needed to get on a different track. And he found us and, and we found him and now he was finding God. And, and he had made the decision that that night at church he wanted to be baptized and had come by the office and we were just studying some more about what it means to line your life up with, with, the, uh, with the will of God and, and your sins forgiven and to be adopted as a son and all of these kinds of things. And I'm, you know, this is all in Portuguese. I'm just waxing eloquent and I'm just going and going and going. He says, it's so great, it's so great, it's so great. Can you believe this? This is what he's doing. The guy's name was, was, was Mikey. And we just, Mikey, can you believe this? And I look up and he's just bawling. This guy looks like Mike Tyson, thus the name Mikey. And he's just bawling. And I went, Kifoy, what's wrong? And he said, down bonito. It's just so beautiful. It's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. Well, what we do tonight is we, we look at Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, is the bridge between what Paul has just written in chapter 6 about the problem of sin in light of baptism and the problem of sin in light of the law and whether or not the, the law is good. And I, I want there's, there's going to be kind of an umbrella that we're going to look at. There's three points we'll make under this umbrella. The umbrella is how the law points to Christ. And the first point under that umbrella, how the law points to Christ, is this. The purpose of the law is to illuminate human ugliness. The purpose of the law? To illuminate human ugliness. Now, there's a lot of things you can say about the law, but one of the primary things that Paul is going to say in this text is that it illuminates human ugliness. In other words, the law of God reveals the very profound human need for salvation. We are, as creatures, in need of rescue. We need to be pulled out of the pit. We need help. We need salvation. The law did two things to, to convict us of the need for salvation. Number one, it defines sin. We have no question about it. It's been defined. Paul says in verse 7, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. And then not only did the law define sin, but it reveals sin. And, and to the point, it reveals sin in us, in human beings, in me. So he says in verse 8 and verse 9, But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. It produced in me every kind of coveting. Sin sprang to life. And I died. Sin sprang to life, and I died. And the reason for that is the nature of sin. The nature of sin is dynamic and corrupting. 
The nature of sin, it is dynamic, it is, it is a power that has to be dealt with, and it is corrupting. There is very clearly in Paul's thinking a dynamic power in sin. In the, the past uh, couple of months, I've mentioned a couple of times the writings of Cornelius Plantiga uh, about sin and his writing about the nature of sin and how he describes it as pollution. Pollution, as you know, because we breathe it and see it every day, pollution is putting together of two things that should be kept apart. For instance, to pollute the soil or the air or the water is to blend into them something foreign, like some kind of a toxic waste or some kind of an acid or some kind of an oil, something that is not natural, something that is foreign. And you take something that is natural and something that is foreign and to mix it together. And when this is done, a natural resource like, like air or water or land is no longer lively. Meaning that it, it no longer is life-producing. It doesn't, it doesn't allow things to flourish in it. And the very thing that was supposed to create life and to flourish life and, 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 to, and, and to support life becomes dead. When you add a third party to a marriage, you have two people with vows making a commitment to each other. Exclusive relationship. And then you bring somebody, a third party, into that, the marriage withers. When you add an idol to the worship of God, you pollute the worship of God with an idol, the passion diminishes. Why Paul says in verse 10, I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life because of sin actually brought death. The very commandment that was actually intended to bring life brought death. And Paul says, says something very interesting again about the nature of sin. He says in verse 11, For sin, seizing the opportunity. Now this is the second time that Paul has phrased it that way. Look back at verse 8. It says the same thing. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. Interestingly, the word opportunity is redundant. I mean, it, it, it catches our attention. Paul is trying, he's grabbing our attention, and with the redundancy, he's trying to tell us something very important and very profound. The word for opportunity, believe it or not, is the word aforme, which is also the word which means military base or a base of operations. A springboard for action. But the question is, this opportunity that sin is, is, is seizing... Where is that base? Where is that aforme located? Well, it could be the human heart. The seed of, of, of desires can sometimes be very perverse. Or it could be what he refers to in the next chapter as, as the flesh. He has already talked about it in the first six verses of chapter 7 as the realm of the flesh. Or later in this chapter, he mentions the mind. What he's trying to say is, verse 17, it is the sin that is living, what's that preposition? In. The Germans have said that there's great theology in the prepositions. It's the sin that is living in me. To be sure, sin is hostile to God's law and twists the function of the law from defining and revealing sin to provoking sin in us 
And in provoking sin produces death in us. The law given to sinners was never intended to be a partnership that worked towards salvation. The law was never a substitute for the faith and trust of Abraham. That law was given to sinners. And sin exploited the law and brought death, not life. And so in verse 13, did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good. There's that corrupting. It used what is good to bring about my death. So that through the commandment, sin might become what? Utterly sinful. Which brings Paul to the place where he needs to say something very profound about the law. The weakness of the law is this. It does not produce holiness. In verses 7-13, through 13, the law is not responsible for our personal experiences of rebellion toward God or judgment of death pronounced on us, but the law which is spiritual and teaches us about the nature of God, and, and teaches us about how life is to be lived, the law, which is spiritual, cannot make me holy. Again, the law is given to sinners. And when that sin and the law do battle inside of me, the production, the, what, they produce, what it produces is death. So Paul says in verse 14, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. And Paul will say in the next chapter, in Romans chapter 8 and verse 3, the law was powerless to do uh, what the law was powerless to do. It was powerless to do because it was weakened by the what? The flesh. And so what Paul has helped us to see here is that there's a battlefield that was created in each of us in the flesh. Sin on one side, law on the other. We, we, we want to do what we don't do and we don't do the very thing that we do want to do. And so verses 21 through 23, I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. Humans are in slavery to sin and they cannot get out. That's what Paul has just said in Romans chapter 6. That's why you participate in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus in your baptism. It is to die to sin because you are a slave to sin. And in dying to sin, you become a slave to righteousness or to obedience or to God. Humans are in slavery to sin. They cannot get out. And that's the turmoil. And that's why crime never goes away. And that's why we are destined to repeat history. You know, people say all the time, we have to know history in order to what? Not repeat it. When have we never repeated it? I mean, there is nothing new under the sun. I mean, And that was said centuries ago. There's nothing new under the sun. Crime never goes away. We are destined to repeat history. Knowledge is never enough to trump the evil desire of the heart. And that's why the earth has a death shroud that is draped over it. 
And when Paul thinks about what it means to be outside of God and to be to, to, outside of God's grace, to be in the power of sin, and how there's no escape. And it's not that there's just no escape, but there's no escape from the most horrible thing ever. He says, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from the body that is subject to death? It's a great question. And he says in the next, Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. You know, one of the things that the law did was to help people to understand the holiness of God and how they would never measure up to it. How, 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 how great the love of God for them through the provision of sacrifice was in order for them to be able to be the, the, the people of God even though they could never measure up to the law. The law kept reminding them year after year, day after day, the ugliness of what it meant to be a human being. But then the cross of Jesus takes place and all of history is just shaken in such a way that that history and the world and all of the universe will never be the same. Things are different. And what that death on the cross, the burial and the resurrection means is that what God is doing where the law magnifies that ugliness, it's God making you and me a beauty. That's what He's doing. That's what He's doing. The very next verse in chapter 8, verse 1, there is no condemnation which means that what the law did not do, God is doing in Christ. And that is overcoming sin and taking away that ugliness and making you beautiful, making you a beauty, making you a glory, making you a palace, making you a, a, a bride, making you a beautiful fruit on a vine that is connected to a, to, that is connected to a branch that is connected to a vine. He is turning you into a beauty so that the battle and the turmoil that you struggle with, that slavery to sin, is over because of God's love in Christ for you and His faithfulness, His righteousness in doing what we could never do and would never do, and that is to restore us to the covenant by paying the price Himself, the price that we deserve to pay. And because of that, no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Which means that I go to sleep tonight and you go to sleep tonight with a free of guilt. What it means is that you go to sleep tonight in the safety of God's grace. It means that you go to sleep tonight with a new identity as a person, a child of God. With, with, a, with a new power and a new motive and a new... A, 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 a new uh, direction and significance and mission and, and goal and target in your life. What it means is that everything that God wanted you and me to be can happen because we are in Christ and we are being conformed to the image of Christ day by day by day. 
And it's not one of those things like, you know, in the old movies and the old stories where it's time to teach your little boy how to, how to swim and you just take him out in the middle of the lake and throw him in and sink or swim. That's not how God treats His children. He doesn't just forgive us of our sins and then expect us on our own power that could never get us into His grace by that same power to try to get us to conform to the image of Jesus. That's one of the reasons why He gives us His Spirit. So that as we walk with that Spirit day by day by day, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, by degree by degree by degree, we are transformed, conformed to the image of Jesus. A work by God's power. And when you begin to, to get all your mind around that and get your mind around the great adventure of, of faith that is before you and, and the ways that you can bring glory to God and the ways that God will use you to, to, to spread the greatness of His kingdom to the hearts of people in the Gospel to make them members and citizens of that kingdom and citizens of heaven, then you begin to feel every once in a while your breath being taken away. Because God can take little old human individuals like us that can't even do anything because of sin dominating us. And not only make His love come to bear on our life in such a way that it just completely overwhelms that sin. And we are saved. But can take people like this that couldn't even beat sin change the world. One life at a time. Steve's going to lead us in a song right now to Canaan's land, right? We are on a journey. A journey of faith in the place of God. Every day. And it's God's grace that not only makes it so, but makes it possible. We're going to have some of our shepherds down here at the front. And if there's someone here tonight that, that, that needs to, to talk about some issues in their life, uh, needs the prayers of the church, needs counsel, or needs to, to understand, how do I get in touch with God's grace in such a way that everything that, that the Bible talks about in terms of the greatness of kingdom life can not just be something out there, but something right here inside of me. Something experienced. Something real. Something life-changing. Something that leads to life and abundant life and eternal life and a, a, the recognition of, of, of being an heir of God and all of those blessings and all of that security. These shepherds can, can talk to you about how that can happen tonight for the rest of us that stand and let's praise God together. Land, I'm on my way where the soul never dies.